Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Uh, but today we are continuing in our series called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus, where we're exploring some of the major and minor stories and writings of the Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And as we explore these stories, uh, uh, we're uncovering this incredible and radical love that is written in every page of the Bible's history. And this love is none other than the person of Jesus. Every story in the Bible points us to this redemptive work, to this power of Jesus that is manifesting itself in our lives. And today we're continuing our look at the book of Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel was this prophet who prophesied to the exiles in Babylon. His ministry began sometime before the fall of Jerusalem, sometime before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And the book of Ezekiel covers three major themes and three major movements. It covers the judgment on Israel, it covers judgment on the nations, and it also covers future blessings for Israel and for God's people, much like many of the other prophets also cover. And these themes are explored through six different visions that Ezekiel has and receives over a span of about 22 years, stretching from the year about 593 to 571 B.C., so if you're unfamiliar with the history of Israel uh, that we've kind of been covering over the past while, um, Babylon was a superpower that rose up. It, it had a lot of strength. It overtook some of the major superpowers like Egypt and Assyria and began to conquer much of the nation of Judah. Israel as a nation was already destroyed. It had already been conquered by Assyria. And so Babylon had already destroyed now most of of that territory and most of Judah and Jerusalem was one of the few strongholds that was holding out against Babylon. And so as the, the surrounding areas around Jerusalem were conquered, many exiles from Judah were taken to Babylon. And so Ezekiel was one of those exiles that was taken sometime in 605 BC during the first wave, and he was taken among many other uh, Judahites. And, and Ezekiel was, was a descendant of Levi, we discovered in our very first chapter of this book. He comes from this line of priests, and he thought he was going to be a priest to serve in the temple of the Lord, but as soon as he was exiled, that dream was shattered, and God gave him this new call to serve as God's prophet to the exiled nation. Interestingly enough, Ezekiel and Jeremiah's ministries actually overlap in the timeline. Ezekiel is preaching to the exiles in Judah, while Jeremiah is preaching to the people who are still holding out in Jerusalem. And so today we're going to start our reading with Ezekiel chapter 8, and we're going to read this vision of warning that he receives about both the exiles and the people in Jerusalem. So we're starting with Ezekiel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It should be available on the screen for you if you want to read along with us. If you have your Bibles and you want to read along with your Bible physically, you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, I highly recommend that. There's something that's, that's just so awesome about engaging with it. But uh, Ezekiel chapter 8, starting in verse 1, says this, In the sixth year, in the sixth month of the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. And I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and he took me by the hair of my head. 
The Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel as in the vision I had seen in the plain. He's referring to chapter 1. And then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked. And in the entrance of the north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things that the Israelites are doing here, things that will drive me far from my sanctuary, do you see it? But he says, but you will see things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into this wall and I saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and I looked, verse 10. And I saw portrayed over all the walls, all kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders, the 70 elders of Israel, and Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, was standing among them, one of the leaders, and each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. They were praising these idols. Now we're going to jump to verse 16 here, and it says, Then he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men. Their backs were toward the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were bowing down to the sun in the east. Now Ezekiel, he's shown this vision of, of this large idol. He calls it the idol that provokes jealousy, is sitting right inside the walls of the courtyard of the temple. So the people in, in Ezekiel's vision, they had built their own idols within the walls of the temple itself. They weren't just worshiping at home privately their idols. They had built an idol inside the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was said to be God's home. It was where here, where the people were setting up their detestable idols within the walls of God's very house. So Ezekiel sees the very leaders and elders of Judah here in this vision, and they're worshiping this idol. They're worshiping these false gods. They're, they're, they're burning incense to these false gods and giving sacrifices. And there's something that we need to keep in mind here as we listen to this vision and as we ponder the vision. The people are still worshiping at the temple. They're still worshiping with the prescribed practices and rituals. They're burning the incense. They're offering the sacrifices. But they weren't worshiping who God really was. You see, while the, while the Israelites did worship idols and false gods, often the people were actually worshiping Yahweh. This is the God of Israel in name, but not in reality. So oftentimes we think that the Israelites, they just were switching religions back and forth, and that's what idolatry was. But the reality is that the Israelites weren't actually switching religions or belief systems. They weren't committing idolatry in the way that we often typically associate with idolatry. It's not like switching from worshiping Jesus to, say, worshiping Zeus, just as an example, right? It's not like you're calling yourself a follower of Jesus a Christian, and then suddenly switching beliefs and then moving to become a follower of Zeus. That's what we often think of when we think of idolatry, that idolatry is worshiping one God and then switching and then worshiping the other God and, and worshiping him in name and practice. That's not what the Israelites were doing. It's something that's actually a little trickier. The, the, the idolatry that the Israelites practice, we call this syncretism. 
Now, syncretism basically means the amalgamation or the joining together of religious thoughts, beliefs, or practices. So in the example that we gave of Jesus and Zeus, syncretism would be worshiping the name of Jesus, worshiping the image of Jesus, while assigning the attributes and the practices of Zeus worship. You guys following along so far? So it would be like worshiping Jesus, but then your image of Jesus is the lightning thrower. Your image of Jesus is the father of God sitting on Mount Olympus offering drink offerings and animal sacrifices in the Greco-Roman tradition instead of the way that Yahweh had prescribed it. You see, syncretism essentially changed the way they associated with and the way that they worshipped Yahweh so much so that the God they were worshipping was no longer the real Yahweh. They were worshipping in the very temple. They were worshipping the right God in name, but in reality and in practice, they were worshipping something entirely different. different. You see, their outward allegiance was to Yahweh in name, but how they acted and worshipped brought their hearts far from who God really and actually was. So here's our very first lesson for today. Our lesson is that we can bring idols into the temple. We can bring idols into the temple. You see, the issue of idolatry is severe, and and what's important to note is how easy it is to really fall into idolatry. As long as we aren't worshiping some other gods, we think we're safe from idolatry. Well, as long as I'm worshiping Jesus and the Christian God, then I'm safe, and, and idolatry isn't an issue for me. But idolatry really, like we said here, it isn't just worshiping other gods in name. Idolatry can be worshiping the right God while living the wrong way. What I mean is that when our view of God, when our picture of Jesus is informed more by our personal beliefs and by by, by our political standpoints than by what God's word actually says, then we are in danger of creating an idol out of God himself. Let that sink in for a minute. When what we personally believe and what we'd rather choose to believe changes the way that we view God and informs the way we view God more than what the Bible actually says and how God actually reveals himself, then we might be turning God into an idol himself. You see, when we worship Jesus in name, but justify our failures to live in love, justify our greed, justify discrimination and oppression when we justify our selfish ways against the true and selfless love of Jesus. We are worshiping an idol of Jesus instead of worshiping Jesus himself. You see, the people in Ezekiel's vision, they were worshiping in God's very house. And what this tells us is that where you worship is really less important than who or what you're worshiping. You see, we can attend church regularly and still be worshiping the wrong thing. In fact, for many of us, and I've been guilty of this too, church is really the only spiritual connection that we foster in the week. Just last week, I was was talking to someone about about church attendance. We were talking about COVID restrictions. It was a friend from from somewhere else, from a different province, and and we were kind of lamenting. We were lamenting about how a lot of people aren't coming back. We're we're not seeing a lot of faces that we used to see. And and I know there's a variety of different reasons that people aren't tuning into church or coming back to church. It's possible that as a church, we haven't done enough to enable connections. It's possible that people are just connecting better somewhere else. 
right? They have a multiplicity of different online options, and it's possible that they're connecting somewhere else. It's possible that people are just not feeling safe yet to come back and worship in person, and and that's perfectly fine. But one of the possibilities that, that we talked about and that we really worried about was that church closures during COVID have simply revealed where our hearts already were. Did you hear that? Think about that for a second. Have church closures really just revealed where our hearts already were? If we have a living and active relationship with God, church closures may have strained that relationship a little bit. It may have made it a little bit more difficult to worship together the way that we worship, but it doesn't squash or kill the relationship. But if our only connection to God was a 90-minute window once a week, then church closure just reveals that we never really had anything with God to begin with. That's heavy, guys. That's heavy. If our church connection, if church, this 90-minute window is the only connection we foster in the week, then it shows us that we actually really didn't have a connection to God in the first place. We just had a connection with church. And, and I don't want you to think that, that I'm pointing fingers and laying blame at everybody else. I know that every church, every community is going to bear their own responsibility for how they have failed to reach people. But if church closers this past year has made you feel like you don't need church or like you don't need community, I want to encourage you to really do some soul searching this week. Really talk to God about why you feel that way. If, if, you, if you talk to God and you feel, oh man, it's because I haven't been connecting with God throughout the rest of the week, then pray about that. Build a relationship with him. But if the reason is because, and you talk to God and the reason is, oh man, church hasn't done enough to connect with me, then pray about how you can be the change to connect with others. See, so many, uh, so many of the times we come to church because it's what we have to do. Or we feel that way. We feel guilty if we don't go to church. For many of us, church has become this religious routine. Listen to this. Church has become this religious routine devoid of an actual spiritual encounter with God. Church is where we're supposed to encounter God. Or at least we think of it that way. But for many of us, church has just become this religious routine. And we have failed to actually meet with God. We complain about not being connected. We complain about not feeling the worship music, not feeling or connecting to the sermon. Oh, it just didn't speak to me today. And we do one of two things. We often either we stop attending, we go somewhere else. Oh, those are two options, sorry. We stop attending or we go somewhere else, right? I mean, that's really it, right? You either stop or you go somewhere else. And by stopping, we mean like you just don't go to church at all. You're like, ah, man, this isn't for me, I'm done, right? Or you say, I'm gonna go shop around. You know, scroll the pages, see where I find myself. And, and I want to say that there's nothing wrong with finding a spiritual community that resonates with you. There's nothing wrong with finding a place where you just feel like you belong. You should feel like you belong. You should feel like you're accepted. You should, should feel closer to God in whatever community you're finding yourself in. But listen to this. When church becomes more about what we get out of the service than the praise we give to God, then there's a very high likelihood that we have turned worship and church attendance into its own idol. When church becomes more about what we get than what we give to God, church and worship has become an idol. You see, worship is not about what you get from the experience. Worship is about giving praise to God because He is worthy of praise. 
Worship is about giving, not getting. Worship, by definition, must be selfless. Worship is not about you. Did you know that? Were you aware of that? (laughs) Worship isn't about you, how you feel, how you connect, whether you like the songs, whether you like the sermon. It isn't about you. Worship is about what you give to God. You see, when we come to places of worship without actually giving in worship, when we claim to be Christians without actually living in selfless love, we've turned religion into an idol. We can bring idols into the temple. See Ezekiel 9. In Ezekiel 9, he sees another vision. We're going to skip a chapter here. And in Ezekiel 9, he sees that God begins to mark everyone who's faithful to him in this area. And then this pretty shocking vision. This angel goes about and brings death to everyone who has committed idolatry, to everyone who's perverted justice, to everyone who is doing evil. And then we're going to jump down to verse 8 of chapter 9. And if you read chapter 9, you're going to find something interesting that I think is of, 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 of real importance here. The angel starts bringing death at the temple first and then works his way out. Something to think about. Chapter 9, verse 8. It says, while they were killing and I was left alone, I fell, I fell face down. I was crying out, alas, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Ezekiel's, he's worried about what's going on. And verse 9 says, God answered me. He answered me, the sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see us. Verse 10, so I will not look on them with pity. I will not look on them and spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads exactly what they themselves have done. See, the people live as if God does not see them. That's how they act. And so God responds by saying, if you want to live like I don't see you, then I won't. And in this vision that Ezekiel sees, he sees the angel delivering death to the people that have chosen sin. But but what is happening is really made clear by what God says in verse 10. The people reap what they have sown. God says, I'm just bringing on them what they have already done. And this is our second lesson today. Our second lesson is we receive as we live. The measure by which we live is the measure by which we receive. If we live out injustice, we're going to live in injustice. If we live out greed, we're going to live in greed. If we live out godlessness, we're going to live in godlessness. And I want you to, to, to really understand that this isn't necessarily divine punishment or karmic retribution. It's just a matter of simple consequence. How you choose to live determines your environment. How you choose to live determines who you surround yourself with. How you choose to live determines how you act and interact with others. So if every one of our choices is destructive and sinful, can we really expect not to live in anything other than sin and destruction? If all of our choices are that, how can we expect to live in anything else? 
And in Ezekiel's vision here, God sends out this town guard, this angel, to kill those who've perverted justice, those who've pursued evil, those who've committed idolatry. And I want you to know that a death sentence is not just a response to worshiping a false god. It's a response to the rampant perversion that has occurred from official leaders from the top all the way down to the bottom. God is responding to the monopolizing and exploitation of religious services for political and, and monetary gain. God is responding to the oppression of the marginalized and impoverished people, to the fact that they were ignoring the fatherless, the widows, the aliens in their community. It is a response to the greed and corruption from city officials that continued to exploit the people around them for their own benefit. And Ezekiel laments here, that God is destroying all the people that are left in Jerusalem. But again, God responds with something that is so key to understanding this judgment and this punishment and this vision. He's saying, listen, the people, they're living like I don't see them. They're living like I'm not even watching them. So I'm going to honor their choice. If they want to live like I don't see them, I'll respect that choice and not see them. God leaves them to the life that they've chosen to live. God says, if you want to live in a life without me, I'll respect that because I love you enough to honor your choice and to never force myself on you. So I have to respect you. And this is, this is the unfortunate part because left without God, the city plunges deeper and deeper into self-destruction and corruption. The destruction really is the fruit that the people reap of the sin that they've already been sowing. See, sin is self-destructive. Destruction is not the action of an angry God. Destruction is the fruit of sin. When we choose to live in sin, we receive the wages of sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. That's the only thing sin pays out. Sin can give you nothing else but death. And so God is really, he's only allowing us to receive what we've already lived. They were living in sin in a world without God, and so God allows them to receive all that that world that they themselves have chosen is. But this is important, especially important in this context. No vision of punishment in the Bible is ever left without hope and redemption. Listen to that. No vision of punishment and judgment in the Bible is ever left without hope and redemption. You see, so many times we read judgment and punishment. We see these visions in the Bible and we think that this is what God is about. But really, the visions of punishment and judgment aren't what God is bringing. It is what already is. It's what we currently live in. See, Paul says we're already condemned to death. He says sin already condemns us. We're already stuck in that state. The Bible really shows us with these visions of judgment and punishment, it's only showing us really realistically opening our eyes to what we're already experiencing. It's just showing us what we're already currently living in. And so the real focus of the Bible isn't the judgment and punishment because that's already happening. The real focus of the Bible is the redemption that Jesus brings from what we're currently stuck in. It's a redemption that saves us from the punishment that is rightfully ours. It's a redemption that gives us hope where there would be no hope without God. So here's our hope. We're going to read this in Ezekiel chapter 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Or Ezekiel eleven fourteen. 
The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the people of Jerusalem have said of your fellow exiles and of all the other Israelites, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent the exiles far away from among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. We talked about this when we read Ezekiel chapter 1, how God goes with us even in our exiles. Verse 17 says, Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations. I will bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all of its vile images and detestable idols. In verse 19, verse 19 to 20, this is the most important part, this is the hope. 19 says, I will give them an undivided heart, and I will put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then, after this heart of flesh is given, then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. So God here promises again restoration for the exiles, exiles much like Jeremiah had been promising for, for so many years uh, before and after. And he promises to bring them back into this land to restore them to the places where they've been taken of. But something really important happens here in chapter uh, 11, 19, and 20. God promises to exchange people's hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. God had told Ezekiel, and he says, listen, these people are stubborn Listen, these people will not change their minds. And then he says in, in chapter 11, these hearts of stone that are hardened against me, these hearts of stone that are stuck in greed and injustice and oppression and evil and sin, God says, I'm going to take those hearts, those broken and messed up hardened hearts, and I'm going to give them instead a heart of flesh. It's all not lost. It's not all lost for the people that are stuck in sin, God can take these stubborn and hardened hearts and he can transform them into hearts of flesh, hearts of love and compassion and obedience. And here's our very final lesson for today. We can be transformed. You see, oftentimes we get bogged down with the scenes of judgment. But really, like I said, those scenes are really only meant to highlight what is already happening, what currently is and it contrasts it with the infinite mercy of our God. You see, when we read stories like this, we're meant to identify ourselves with the abhorrent sinfulness of Israel. We're meant to realize, hey, I'm exactly like that. I'm stubborn, and I'm messed up, and I'm sinful, and I have this heart of stone that makes it so difficult to follow and listen to God. And we're really meant to understand that the destruction, the punishment that comes is something we deserve because of the sin that we're in. But, but in a complete reversal of expectations, we receive grace. We know we should be given death because of sin, but instead we're given life. We know that we are guilty, but instead we're declared innocent. We know that we should be lost, but instead we are saved. And too often we focus on these verses of, of judgment and punishment, but visions like this only really show us again the state we're already in. We're already in condemnation. We're already declared guilty. We're already in death. But the Bible shows us this state and then demonstrates to us the mercy and compassion and forgiveness that is available in God. The Bible says it's here. It's available. It's an option. You can have redemption. 
you can have a heart of flesh. I want to invite the band to come on up as we begin to close here. And what makes Christianity so different, what makes it so different from some of the mystic and spiritualistic religions is that this change, this life alteration, this transformation doesn't occur from inside ourselves. So many religions want you to focus on on finding your inner peace, on looking inside yourself, on meditating, on whatever steps you want to take to find that, 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 that bliss or whatever, that nirvana, whatever you want to call it inside yourself. But Christianity tells us it's not possible. You cannot find it in yourself. This change doesn't occur from inside your own heart. How can a heart of stone do anything productive? But it's not about us transforming ourselves. It's about God transforming us. We're shown time and time again throughout the history of the Bible, even throughout your own history, I'm sure you know it, that no matter how hard you try to change on your own, you can't do it. We cannot choose this goodness, this perfect obedience. We cannot choose selfless love by ourselves. We cannot choose it on our own. The nature of humanity is a sinful world. The nature of humanity is sin and selfishness and destruction. The change that we need, the change that we long for, can only come from outside of ourselves. This change can only come from God. It's not about you. And this should should make you happy. Because if any of you have struggled with sin like I have struggled with sin, you know how difficult it is to try to actually change things. You know what it's like to sit on your knees and pray, God, give me the strength in myself to overcome sin. And you know how oftentimes that prayer fails because it's not about your strength and it's not about you and it's not about your willpower and it's not about what you do and it's not about your heart. It's about God's power and his spirit in you. It can only come from God. This new heart of flesh is given to us by God. It's God's heart of flesh. It's God's heart that gives us the ability to follow his laws of love on our own. We we cannot do it. Our hearts, it says, are hardened stone. But with God, we're transformed. With God, we're given the ability to live that selfless love of Jesus. You see, with our hearts of stones, we're prone to idolatry. We bring idols into the temple. You know, the people of Israel and Judah, they were blending their broken beliefs and their detestable practices with the worship of Yahweh. They hadn't turned from Yahweh. Let's make that clear. What they did was worse. They had molded Yahweh into their own image. They had justified their evil. They had justified their sin and their injustice and the oppression of others. You see, we can make idols out of anything. We can even make idols out of church and worship. When what we believe about God is informed more by our politics and our opinions and our thoughts and the actual word of God than how he actually reveals himself, than his selfless love, then we are making God into our image. We're making false idols out of God. We can, we can make church and worship an idol when it becomes a matter of religious routine instead of part of our actual spiritual relationship with God. And where we worship is less important than who and why we're worshiping. Worship isn't about us. It isn't about what we get from the experience. Worship is about giving praise to God because he is worthy of our praise. 
It's different than thankfulness, because I want to make this clear, and I've said this a couple of times. Thankfulness is thanking God for what he's done. So thankfulness is dependent on what you receive and what you experience. Praise is not. Praise is, is independent of what he does. Praise is because God is who he is. Praise is because he is love. Praise is because he is merciful. Not just because he's done mercy. Don't, don't mix the two. Not just because he's shown you love. Not just because he's given you redemption, but because he is redemption. Because he is salvation. Because he is love itself. That's what praise is, to give God the glory because that's who he is, not just because of what he's done. And part of the way that we praise in spirit and in truth is how we live. If we choose to live in sin, then we receive the destruction that sin brings because we receive as we live. You see, the people of Judah, they lived as if God hadn't seen them. So God honored their choice by giving them up to the world that they wanted to live in. They wanted to live out injustice and oppression and greed. And so they became the victims of those very things. We cannot expect to live in sin and not receive sin's consequence. Sin only leads to death, to chaos, to pain, to destruction. This is our present and our current state. Judgment is not something that is brought upon us. It is something we're already in. And the visions of, of judgment show us what is inevitable, what is bound to happen if we remain in sin. What the Bible actually demonstrates is the compassion and mercy of God. It shows us what is possible when we allow God into our hearts, a mercy that saves us from impending judgment, a forgiveness that saves us from eternal death. See, too many times we focus on the wrong thing. We focus on destruction and judgment when really the Bible is trying to show us the redemption that is found in Jesus. And you see, that redemption, that salvation comes not in our own power. It doesn't come through ourselves. It comes only through the power of Jesus. Our hearts of stone are taken away, God says. I exchange them at no cost to you. He does it. He takes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh and he says, you can be transformed. You see, we ourselves, by ourselves, without God, are incapable of overcoming sin. And it's not about finding some, some sort of hidden strength within. It's not about finding your inner peace or, or, or meditating or finding an enlightened state. The power to overcome only comes through Jesus. Our hardened hearts of stone cannot live in obedience to God, but praise God that it's not up to us. It's not up to you to overcome. God doesn't sit there and say, well, you need to fix yourself before I come to you. God doesn't say, well, you need to overcome sin before we start working in you. God doesn't say, well, you need to be perfect before you start doing anything. No, God says, I am giving you the heart of flesh that makes it possible for you to even do anything. I am giving you the heart of flesh that makes it possible to love. God trades out our human hearts of stone and gives us divine hearts of flesh, hearts that are able to live compassion and love and mercy, hearts that are able to live the commandments of, of God, which are simply summed up by Jesus. Love God, love others. See, the power to change and love does, and obey doesn't come from within ourselves. It comes from God. It's external. And God promises that when we accept this heart of flesh, we become his people and he becomes our God. See, we don't have to fear a judgment on hardened hearts because God is offering a heart of flesh, a heart of love and compassion, a heart that has the power to transform our sin-soaked lives into lives of selfless love, the selfless love of Jesus. God says, I will give you a heart of flesh, 
I'll exchange it for you. I'll give you the power to overcome. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. Jesus says, it's my power in you that is the heart of flesh. Amen.